this segment of the Dialogue Book Report, we are talking to Lisa Van Orman Hadley about her novel, Irreversible Things. Lisa Van Orman Hadley graduated from the Warren Wilson MFA program for writers. She received the Larry Levis Postgraduate Fellowship, a Barbara Deming Memorial Fund grant, and a Malay Connolly Fellowship to work on Irreversible Things. Her stories have most recently appeared in Epic, New England Review, and The Collegist. Lisa lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I've never done a podcast before, so. <laughs> I'm so, so glad to have you. <laughs> Let me start with a reading from the review of Irreversible Things, which will appear in this issue of Dialogue. And this review is by Sarah Nichol Moore, and I believe this is Lisa's first time to hear this review. It is. I haven't heard it. Okay, here we go. Judging by its length, Irreversible Things is the kind of book that I should have been able to finish in a couple of hours. Perhaps one evening, after the kids had gone to bed, I could curl up on the couch for a quick light read with some hot chocolate. It is small enough to easily fit in my purse to read in snatches while commuting or waiting in the doctor's office. Like its diminutive narrator, however, Irreversible Things demands to be read slowly. No, perhaps demands is the wrong word. Rather, this book sits down next to you, softly puts its hands on your knee, and says in a gentle Floridian accent, Wait, honey. I don't think you've heard me right. Try reading that bit again. It took me weeks to finish this book because I kept pausing to catch my breath, rereading and rediscovering passages, and savoring a language that is heartbreakingly simple and poetic. Irreversible Things, the titular chapter of this autobiographical novel and stories, opens with the sound of cicadas. As a born and raised southerner myself, I remember being a child and listening to the rhythmic wailing of thousands of bugs as my father explained to me that I wouldn't hear this again for 17 years. I remember in that moment feeling a terrible sadness as I tried to listen to every song, to hear each insect, and with each buzzing decrescendo, I wondered, is this the last? Is it over? Lisa Van Orman Hadley beautifully recreates that desire to hold on to something, even as it disappears with simple, everyday childhood stories that are infused with urgency. She compels us to notice the texture of thermals, sweatpants and jeans all layered up to keep out the cold, the chill as the night air switches from summer to autumn overnight, and the familiarity of your very own chair Van Orman Hadley invites you into her home without tidying up first, allowing you to see the messes, see that the messes are the most beautiful part. Each family member and friends portrayed with a perfect mix of childhood innocence and honesty. When her mother complains that in every story she is a complete idiot, Van Orman Hadley fittingly responds, but the mother is my favorite character. Just like her characters, Hadley allows the narrator to be flawed. She definitely maneuvers the difficulties of the memoir genre by creating a narrator whose tone matures as the book progresses, but who never loses her identity. And it goes on from there. Do you recognize that? Is that the book you wrote? Um, I don't know. That was, that sounded really nice. Like, I don't know if I wrote that good of a book. That was very complimentary and kind. Thank you so much. Well, tell me what brought you to to, read, to write this. This is your first book. What? Uh, tell me the process that brought you to this. Uh, it was a very, very long process. So uh, I started grad school at Warren Wilson I did my undergrad at the University of Utah, and then I went to Warren Wilson and um, MFA program. And my first semester there, I was admitted as a fiction student. They only have fiction and poetry. And so I was admitted as a fiction student. And my first semester, I just tried to write stories that were complete fiction that had nothing to do with me. And they were all just kind of boring to me and kind of lackluster and so then during my second semester I uh secretly on my own kind of started writing stories about my family um 
And that was very exciting to me. And it's all I wanted to write about. Um, so I, I started submitting some of those stories to my teacher and he liked them. And so I kept writing more and, uh, it kind of just, it was the only thing I worked on for my entire MFA program after that. And my thesis ended up being several stories that became irreversible things. Um, I don't know. I've always, I guess I've always had a little bit of a rebel in me and somehow being in a fiction program, <laughs> like allowed me to write memoir or nonfiction. I don't really, I don't know. I mean, it is fiction too. Like it's not all true. And that's one of the things people ask me all the time is like, what's true? What isn't? And I think they're often surprised about what the true parts are and what the fictionalized parts are. Mm, I don't know if I want to ask. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even my siblings, they're like, did that really happen? And yeah, we all, and we all have different ways of remembering what happened. So, and my sister, apparently like in irreversible things, uh, the story you talked about earlier, she was like, why did you write me out of that story? Like I was in Florida for that whole thing. And I just didn't know, like, I didn't, I didn't even know she was there. And so I was like, sorry, Sarah, I didn't mean to. Maybe explain the structure of the, of the book a little bit. What's in the book? Hmm. I mean, the stories, like some of them are very short, like a sentence or two. Some of them are longer, like 10 to 20 pages. I like to play with form a lot. So there's, a story that's written as a glossary. There's a story, the title story is called Irreversible Things and it's written in reverse chronological order. There's a story that's a choose your own adventure. There's mad libs section. <laughs> yeah, I just like, I was just having fun with it. And so I tried putting stories into all kinds of different forms and seeing what worked and what didn't. What, what are the major themes do you think that appear in the book? I mean, in some ways, I think it's a building roman. It's like a coming of age story. So the first half of the book is kind of childhood. And uh, when I was seven, our neighbor across the street was murdered on the side of my house. So that was a very traumatic thing that happened when I was seven. So there's a story about that. And then it covers like moving from Florida to Utah and going to college. And then I would say the second half of the book is more em emphasizes like my dad getting Alzheimer's and me going through infertility and things like that. I loved how you used allusions throughout that come to play later on. For instance, the twin Barbie dolls that you never got, <laughs> you know, as you, as you play with your Barbie family and then how that pays off at the end within the irreversible things story about the, the, the neighbor who was murdered and you go, like you say, it's in reverse chronology, but there's a cat who's found dead in these alias. And actually you see her as, as a very small girl. You, you see the cat and you're so upset that you don't tell anybody that you saw her. And later on the next day, your sister finds her. And then we find out later, these are the same azaleas where the neighbor's body was found. Yeah. It's reading the second time as I did recently, I found a lot of those illusions that I hadn't seen before. And I, again, I, as a reviewer said, you have this naive, childlike voice in the first half, at least, of the book. And you're telling these simple things of, you know, children writing their names in the bottom of chairs and the little adventures that the kids get into. But it seems like at the end of every section, 
we feel the, the deeper weight of these things, the, the greater import of these things that seem so prosaic and, and everyday at first. I really appreciate that. Could you, could you do a reading from the book? Sure. I'll read a story called Glossary. It's uh, the second story in the book. Glossary. Glossary. Noun. Plural. Glossaries. An alphabetical list of terms or words found in or relating to a specific subject, text, or dialect with explanations. A brief dictionary. One. The daughter makes a glossary of the peculiar things the mother and father say. Gosh, dagnabbit! Exclamation. A euphemism for a widely used phrase in which a deity is invoked to curse someone to heck, which is another euphemism for a widely used word representing the devil's fiery realm. This substitution is most often made by those averse to swearing and those strictly observing the third commandment. This aversion to curse words may be imposed by oneself, one's religious institution, or one's spouse. One. When the father misses a serve during a tennis match, he slaps his palm to his forehead and screams, Gosh, dang, nabbit, Bob, you flipping idiot. Guysies. Noun. Plural of the plural form of guy. Typically used as a term of endearment to identify or address a group of people with whom the speaker feels particularly close, usually members of one's own family. One. The family is playing a card game. The mother, out of nowhere, says... Guysies, I like books about little mice. Singular form, rare, guysy. Two, when all the children have left the nest, the mother turns to the father and says, guess it's just you and me, guysy. Heavens to Betsy, noun, preposition, proper noun. An exclamation of disapproval or disgust, having nothing to do with an angelic abode or a woman named Betsy. One, the mother takes the daughter to a movie. When they return to the car after the movie has ended, they discover that they have left the lights on and the engine is dead. The mother nervously calls the father from the payphone in the movie theater to tell him what has happened. He yells, heavens to Betsy Ellen, can't you do anything right? And then promptly grabs the keys and rushes to the car to rescue them. Wooey, exclamation, used to express delight, surprise, or disapproval. The One, the mother's parents call to invite the father and the mother to join them on a trip to Egypt. The mother hangs up and remains sitting in the chair saying, wooey, 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 over and over again before she finally gets up to fold the laundry. Two, the mother is in the kitchen doing dishes late at night after the children have been tucked into bed. The father goes around to the backside of the house and lights his face up with a flashlight outside the window where the mother is washing the dishes. The mother screams, calms down a bit, and resuming her scrubbing says, wooey. Three, the mother is watching a movie with her family. The couple on the screen begins to kiss passionately. The mother squirms in her chair and says, wooey, they sure don't kiss like they used to. It looks like they're eating each other. Wooey guysies, exclamation, followed by the plural of a plural noun, used to express extreme delight, surprise, or disapproval to a group of people with whom the speaker feels extremely close, almost always members of one's own family. One, the mother comes home, all lit up from a church activity she has just attended. She exclaims, wooey guysies, women love crafts. The daughter challenges her on this, saying, Mom, you don't even like crafts. The mother, modifying her statement, says, 
wooey guysies. Most women love crafts, too. The daughter often says, wooey guysies, a mimicry of the mother. She uses it at first to poke fun of the mother, and then, later, because she finds it endearing. Yeah, I love that. Thank you very much. Her part says wooey guysies. <laughs> her wooey is, her, her, like, the wooey when she found out she was going on a trip to Egypt. I was expecting more of a wooey if she was excited, but you kind of, it was, a, it was kind of a very subtle wooey. <laughs> I wish I could get my mom on here to say wooey for you in her own voice. There's also like my siblings all spell it in a different way. I spell it W-O-O-E-Y. Some of them spell it W-O-O-W-I-E. I've seen other variations on it. She really comes, she really is the center of the novel in a lot of ways, the mother, at least, you know, besides the, the protagonist character, she's, you know, she's, and she's presented like, like we said before, and kind of in fun a lot of times, but then endearing. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I hope that that's the way she comes across because I, we love to make fun of my mom. She's a quirky person, but I adore her. And, um, I, uh, that was probably my biggest hesitation in writing this book was that I was worried about how my family would respond to it, even though it's a work of fiction and things have been changed. Um, I really worried about how they would respond to it. It's been hard for my mom. I'll say that. Like she, <laughs> I think she's coming around and I think she's heard other people say like how much they love the mom in the book. And, um, things like that. And somehow it helps her to hear it from other people. I tried to write it in a way that would show like how much I admire her and love her. But also, you know, as I think you said in the review, I wrote a couple of stories like addressed directly to her. Like um, one of them was called uh, a perfect character. Well, where she says like, why are there any stories where I don't look like a complete idiot? <laughs> and <laughs> I say, my mom's the favorite character. There's another story called, um, I think it's called a perfect mother. And it's all about how like there was this perfect mother who like did said everything right all the time and kept an immaculate house. And the only problem with her is that she was incredibly boring and everyone hated her. And so I'm always telling my mom, like, nobody wants a perfect mother. Like uh, the fact that she's a flawed person is what makes her so great, you know? All right. Well, we've talked about your mother. How about you t tell me about the role that your father plays in the stories? He doesn't take such a prominent role as my mother, but he definitely shows up in a lot of the stories. And in the early stories, it's like he has less of a role because he was working all the time and he was always the bishop or stake president and he wasn't home a lot. But I, I adored my father. And um, he shows up a lot more in the later stories because he got Alzheimer's. It's interesting because he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's while I was in the middle of writing the book. And mm -hmm. I always heard from people like, you shouldn't write about something while you're going through it. You need like distance from the material. You need to have a few years between the material and when you're writing it to like be able to reflect on it. But I just started writing about it and it worked its way into the book. And so I wrote about him developing Alzheimer's and the progression of the disease. And I, the last half of the book has probably four or five stories about my dad. 
Yeah. I love the story about making Reuben sandwiches with him. Thanks. Um, and how's your dad doing now? He lives in a nursing home now. Um, my mom kept him at home and took care of him for a really long time, but she just wasn't able to take care of him anymore. So he's been in a nursing home for about three years and I live in Utah now. And so I'm able to visit him frequently, except for COVID. The nursing home has been on lockdown for the last three or four months. I haven't been able to see him recently. Several of the other patients in the nursing home got COVID. So two thirds of them have it now. And I think 28 of the workers, my dad does not have it. So he doesn't have COVID, but he is in the very late stages of Alzheimer's and he's on hospice. So two thirds of the, of the, yeah. the patients have that. That is just amazing and terrible. Yeah. And it's, it's spread so quickly, like unbelievable. They've been doing the best they can. They've been separating everyone as best they can and following all the protocols, but it's still just been spreading like crazy. Well, I hope he's okay. Yeah. Tell me about the art on the cover. It's a beautiful piece. And I wish I could show it to everybody. So look up the cover because my brother did the artwork and I love it. I love, I have uh, two brothers who are professional artists. That was always my dream to have one of my brothers do the artwork but I, I mean, authors often don't have a huge say in the artwork. <laughs> and so I wasn't counting on it. So I very delicately brought it up to my publisher and said, I have a brother who's an artist. Like, is there any way that you might consider having him do the artwork? He agreed to like try it out. And there were a lot, there was a lot of back and forth after that. But I really love the finished product. My brother, Johnny Van Orman did it. I do too. It's, it's it's a remarkable piece, and it's so fitting that in such a such a personal book about family to have a family member do the art. Yeah, I was really really happy that that worked out, and I'm really pleased with the way it worked out because he read the book. He was probably one of the first members of my family to read it, and he read it and kind of just came up with his own interpretations and made sketches based on those. I really love what he did. I like how you have a table of contents. That's normal. And then a table of discontents. We list your family, the names of the people in your family. Yeah. <laughs> and of puns. <laughs> they come up every once in a while. Uh, yeah, I love puns. <laughs> As you mentioned, there are several one-page or very short sections. One of them simply is called Artifact. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if I completely understood that. And it's so short. I wonder if you can tell us about that. So it's called Artifact. I think it comes after a story about a museum. And it's it just says, I am the I stuck between art and fact. I think that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that kind of explains how I feel about this book. I feel like there's a very thin line between fiction and nonfiction, if there's any line at all. I feel like memory is fuzzy and I don't know if it's possible to write a book that's completely fact. While I was writing this whole book, I tried to, I tried to stay true to like the emotions as I felt them, but I did take creative license and I felt like if something made a better story or I felt like it was a more artistic choice, I followed that sometimes. 
but I feel like I was, I tried to be as true as I could to like the emotional truth or the emotional facts. Have you read Educated by Tara Westover? I have. Yeah. What do you think of that? I really enjoyed it. I read that book in like one day, which I don't do very often, but I, I found it very compelling. I mean, that, that is, a, is a memoir. I've seen that her brothers, certainly her parents, and also some of her family members have questioned some of the th- things. I don't think this happened. And, this, yeah. and they, they remember things in a different way. And, she, and she's actually written about that, talking about one of her older brothers and how he remembered things differently. And it wasn't anything that destroyed the book, but you know, she, she, she recognizes that this is the way that memory works. Yeah, and she definitely has disclaimers in the book that say, I remember it this way, but my siblings remember it another way. I knew for me very early on in writing this book that I wanted to call it fiction. It was never really a question for me of whether to call it fiction or nonfiction. I I think I published one one of the stories as nonfiction, and I still feel kind (laughs) of... I still feel kind of weird about it. I don't know. It doesn't really feel like either to me. Like I didn't want to have to make the choice. And it felt like it felt like memoir nonfiction has more rules or people are expecting certain things from it or expecting you to like stay true to it in a way that fiction doesn't. Fiction felt like it gave, gave me more freedom to go off on a different path if I wanted to. I forgot to mention in your uh, introduction at the beginning that the book has won the Association for Mormon Letters Special Award in Literature. Now, it was a finalist in the novel category. I was involved in arranging the awards. And so the novelist uh, judges loved this book, and, and several of them wanted to give it the novel prize. But then other members of the judging group said, well, this is not a novel, though. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure this is a problem that that's come up um, before, but... So instead, the Association for Mormon Letters decided to give the book a special award in literature. Said, well, we're not sure what genre it belongs to, so we're just going to give it a special award. Which I'm thrilled with, because I like I don't think I would call it a novel. <laughs> but yeah, every time I submitted it to something, I had to like check a box that said novel or short story collection or fiction or nonfiction. And none of the choices seemed exactly like the right way to describe what this book is which is good like I don't really want it to be easily definable I guess what would you want to write next I have started writing something else that is is more fictional like it's not based on my own life but I don't know I don't think it's possible for me to write something that's purely fiction like I I'm I write a lot about emotions and, and um, human experiences and like I can't help but have like my own thoughts and feelings bleed into everything I write. So, so I don't know. We'll see what it ends up being. Maybe it'll turn into a complete autobiographical novel again. Well, Lisa, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you. It was good to talk to you.